Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today works for the CDC and likes to use his pseudonym, Dr. Nero. In this podcast, he discusses how medicine can better respond to patients, but also how the lessons from the pandemic can be translated into better care when the next pandemic comes upon us. Here to share his story is Dr. Nero. Dr. Nero, not your real name, I'm delighted to have you on the show. Thank you so much for taking time from your busy schedule to speak with me today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I want to start our conversation right at the very beginning and ask you, why medicine? Why did you choose to become a doctor? You know, one of the first experiences I've had was actually with an Alzheimer's patient. Very, very, very late stage Alzheimer's. And she was one of like my first really decent friends that I had made. And and, and I'll tell you, like, you know, working with that staff and really working in kind of that care setting, even as like an intern, I was just like, you know, one of those the kids who were just kind of shadowing around the staff and everything. This individual made such an impact on me that I actually never considered doing medicine initially, but it was that impact that that woman had and the care that the staff gave that in turn was what kind of really started the discussion in my head to kind of go into medicine. And, you know, like really it's been a, it's a cumulative thing where it's been a lot of like wonderful teachers and influencers that have really kind of pushed me towards like looking into medicine as a career. And um, I definitely don't doubt (laughs) um, or feel regret going into the field. (laughs) But very unusual for a doctor. When when we ask doctors these questions, then very rarely mention someone with late stage Alzheimer's disease as being the inspiration for their journey into healthcare. Tell me a little bit Mm -hmm. about that. Why was that so moving to you? To me, what I saw was not necessarily the patient, which absolutely we should be patient central focused and everything. It's the fact that we, I saw a system that was geared to support the patient in every way, not just in a clinical treatment setting, but also looking at a systemic like you know way to support that patient it's something as simple as ensuring that the lighting in there was just the right amount it was ensuring that staff were trained to to have sensitivity training to have discussions with her it was working with the patient's family and you could see that they really appreciated the flexibility and to kind of have that accessibility beyond there. I think that that's what really touched me was that there was a system in place that really supported someone who could not do much for themselves. And that to me was really kind of what spoke to me in that aspect. I can see that. And I I saw that in the NHS in the UK, where it was very much team-based care. And as you Mm say, all catered for every aspect of the patient's needs. And yet we know that In the system now, and particularly in some parts, not just in the US, but in the UK and and also in in Australia, the system doesn't always meet those needs. And multidisciplinary care hasn't met its promise in the way Mm -hmm. that you and I experienced it when we were training. 
what are your reflections on that? One of the many things, and I know this is something you and I could probably touch on later, is like the whole aspect that we we talk about a lot of these collaborative team-based effort to focus centralized on patient care. And we talk about a lot of interdisciplinary coordination. In an ideal world, we would have this, but just based on from a population level and just the needs that are growing exponentially, what we're finding out is that we have a system that is truly antiquated and can't handle the patient load and the needs that are presented here in a society that expects more. And I think many in many aspects, this is a failure, uh, not just from the health system's perspective, but it's also a uh, very much an intergovernmental function that fails to understand the prioritization of funding necessary to uh, support this. And not even just funding, but just resources and making sure that there is accessibility across the board. You know, one of the things I really that still bothers me to this day is that, you know, I spoke to an individual young gentleman who, who mentioned that. He had no idea what pre-exposure prophylaxis was, and he was talking about HIV/AIDS. And he had, and for him to understand what it was, he had to travel an hour away from his rural hometown to just simply get an information pamphlet on that. Now, you know, I, I think a lot of people will just argue, well, they just have the internet. I'm like, well, you assume that most people will have internet, but this person did not have access to internet. They had to drive out to this clinic to get information about. Prep. I think we really, as as a community and also just a society in general, really uh, understate the whole accessibility and equitable aspects of healthcare. And it really touches kind of upon what that original question you were asking. It's just like where, where, what is my viewpoint on it? And I think that we really need to coordinate across the spectrum to kind of like figure out what's the best way to ensure that we are ensuring access and we are ensuring equitable response to everyone as much as possible. Now, it might be impossible or it might be very difficult, but we need to try. <laughs> so, and that's kind of where I'm at. Inequity is a big part of the system. But what I would comment on and what I've mm -hmm. observed in my conversations with many people is that they say, if I were to be involved in a road traffic accident and they were to scoop me up off the road and take me to an emergency department, I would get superb care. But if mm -hmm. I have a chronic long-term illness, the system yeah. can't cope. Yes. And we're seeing that right now with a lot of long COVID patients right now. That's been one of the biggest challenges right now as like really understanding the pathophysiology and truly what would, I mean, we didn't even identify a ICD code, which is kind of where we go and enter in for a patient that had that until last year. We didn't even have a code until last year. And I think that this kind of really speaks to the fact that when we have truly a novel pathogen or something of a novel case scenario where a patient presents in a way that is very difficult and very like non-traditional, how do we make sure that we are agile enough to address the needs of everything? And for those who, who do have you know, chronic fatigue syndrome, long COVID, or post-acute sequelae, like we have to ensure that that system is somewhat in place to be agile enough to adopt, adapt to that. And we currently don't have that right now in that system. And I understand the frustrations of many patients who do go through it and say, I have XYZ symptoms. 
after this COVID infection, I don't know how to how to approach this issue. And for a period of time, a lot of physicians did not know how to approach it because we don't, we don't even know like, okay, well, do we put them under this category or this category? We don't even know how to categorize it. So it's just, okay, well, hopefully you sleep and exercise and come back in three months and these patients become disenfranchised and disheartened. And so it's a very, very difficult system to maneuver through for a lot of those, for those chronic symptoms. Okay, that really puts us at the heart of our conversation. Because you and I agree that the system, when it worked well, when you had multidisciplinary care that worked like an orchestra and was someone with a baton actually coordinating all of this care, the system was brilliant. Now inequity is rife where the system fails people constantly, even with relatively simple problems with relatively simple solutions. You described access to PrEP and, and other things. So how have you faced that in your career? Why are you not cynical and why didn't you just uh, tear up your medical degree? I think, and this is going to sound cynical, but I swear it's not. The way I've explained it to people really is that these inequities and these, these obstacles have actually existed for a very long time. What the pandemic did really was exacerbate and really put a spotlight on all of the, cr- the cracks and the fractures that are already existing within the health community. And it amplified it, really, because we, every single health system around the world became strained under the duress of the pandemic. And as a result, other services suffered. And so what you started to see really was that a lot of these issues have actually been here for quite some time. And if you worked in a lot of global health, where you do work in very rural places where it's like literally one nurse to a village of 50 people, you understand that these resources and a lot of the services that we offer, we take for granted in many ways. And we can, and I think we almost got to a place of complacency before the pandemic hit, where this is as good as it's going to get, which is not the case. And we, we surely saw that when the pandemic hit and you saw an influx of resources being poured into a lot of these institutions. And you start to realize that maybe it was because we didn't prioritize it. Maybe it was because we didn't feel like it wasn't a bad enough of an issue in a lot of the developed countries to really ensure that we are addressing the folks who are being left behind, the the patients who aren't getting the treatment that they need to. And it really put a damper on a lot of that stuff. And we we finally got, I, I hope, from my many aspects is that we learned our lesson from this, but I still think that there's still a lot, a lot, a lot of ground to cover, ensuring that we're getting there. <laughs> you are listening to the Health Design Podcast with your host Moyes Jiwa. So let me be even more precise and say, let us take a situation that you and I both would be very familiar with. The 70-year-old patient who lives alone, who has an acute chest infection, ends up in an emergency department, sits on a gurney for 7, 8, 12 hours before they're seen by a junior doctor who does a cursory examination, a chest x-ray, prescribes antibiotics and sends the patient home only for that patient to return 
few hours later, really very, very ill. This is not an uncommon scenario. So what is our role, being the doctors that we are, in making sure that this doesn't continue, given that the system isn't going to change anytime soon? I spoke to a lot of emergency departments and ICU physicians who do typically work with, and even my partner, who is also an emergency uh, physician as well, I think part of it has to be addressed, one, from a system perspective, where we need to start thinking about how best we can redo the paradigm of the typical triage within an emergency department aspect, from one aspect, and understanding that there is a resource under allocation in there from the patient load. Because when you have those patients, that poor individual gentleman who is waiting seven to eight hours, and they get seen by a junior doctor and then get prescribed amoxicillin or whatever, and they get sent home with Z-Pack or whatever, and come to find out that it's actually something else or something even more severe, and it comes back with sepsis, <laughs> you, you start to, it starts to kind of like beg the question of like, did, they, did this person, did the physician have enough time or resources and were they supported enough that they could actually really make the, the proper diagnoses? So Having a junior doctor, hopefully they would have an attending sign-off, but sometimes that might not be the case. But the ideal situation is that you would have that resource there. Not every health system has that. Not every And not every system allows for that flexibility to do so. And I think part of it is like we might need to not just think about like thinking about the paradigm of triage, but also ensuring that we are bringing, we're bolstering our workforces too. We are already strained right now in terms of the amount of physicians per patient in most hospitals. You think about that before the pandemic and then after the pandemic, where a lot of physicians, nurses, RNs, whoever, they all retired, quit, moved on, ran their own practices because it became absolutely unbearable from that strain, that burnout, that the the needs that are there. And that's a failure on that system because it did not it did not bend or waver to help support the resilience really of the workforce which unfortunately was not there so it's a very long complicated question (laughs) answer to your question but i don't think it's necessarily an individual physician issue i think really it's a much more of a system management how we we approach these like emergency cases I understand the importance of the system actually responding, as we've described, because those resources are critical. I think part of the problem in COVID, in particular in the pandemic, was the fact that they were, the beds were so full of patients yeah. that the emergency department just couldn't cope. They just didn't have the bed allocation in order to admit yeah. somebody who was, who was ill, and they were in survival mode. I want to pivot a little bit, and I know many of our listeners are junior doctors or or, or medical students, thinking about this. Yes, the system needs to change, but what do we say to those colleagues who are currently working in these conditions? Don't stop advocating for better patient care. That's That's one of the first things is that I think we, unfortunately, and I'm calling out very much our own profession, we have a very toxic work environment where it, it stresses about the fact that a badge of honor of how much work can you do and how much patient can you, you know, treat and how much 
it doesn't matter at the end. What the purpose behind at the end is like, how good of a care did you provide that patient? Did you feel you do your best? And it's something I would always encourage when I talk to other physicians, junior physicians as well. It's like, did you feel like you did your best? And did you feel like you were supported? If you don't feel like you are supported, you need to advocate for yourself and your colleagues and for your field. Because one of the many things that we unfortunately have continuously permeated in a lot of our, and I think this is just like an old school way, it's just you need to tough it out. You need to have this built-in resilience and durability to handle all the stress that you can have. And what I always ask at the end, like, how are you doing? Like, how is, how are you handling all of this? Because this durability and this resilience is not something that's just caught on. You build it after long periods of time, but not within six months or a year. That's, that, that takes long years of training and, uh, you know, exposure but this pandemic really like wrought upon this horrible expedited, like cro- I call it the CrossFit of like medical training to these individuals that really did not know how to deal with this type of stress. And I think in the end, it really brought down the whole lot of questions to how we were training a lot of folks and say, how do you, how, how ask them, ask them as well as like, these are for the, you know, senior doctors is that ask your junior staff, like, how are you doing? What can I do to support you to make sure that you're doing your job better? Because I think that communication has been broken in many ways in a lot of systems, and we need to be better about supporting each other because that permeates down to the patient. And if we can do better in terms of supporting each other, then we, what you find out is that these patients are going to get the care that they need. So... The Journal of Health Design, fostering collaboration, amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. What occurred to me was, as you were speaking there, is the advice to put your mask on first before attempting to help somebody else. As they say, should the awful thing happen that the oxygen masks fall out in the middle of your flight. It's um, wonderful, yeah. <laughs> we, we don't do that very often, do we? I mean, in particularly, we, we almost frown upon doctors who put their health first and say, look, I need to go to the gym. I need to make sure that I'm well, that I've got the support that I need, and then I can be creative. And of course, what we need at the moment, more than ever, are creative mm-hmm. doctors, problem solvers, and we are, as a profession, extremely creative. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, let's talk a little bit about your other work then. Your interest, I know, is in health literacy. So why health literacy? Why do you think that's such an important part of the piece? So one of the many things that I do right now on Twitter and a couple of other social media platforms is really communicating about vaccines, about infectious diseases, because what really spurred this on was this misinformation and disinformation has existed way before COVID. I'll just play that out right now. But it really was exacerbated in many ways during the pandemic. And a lot of folks said, uh, what we started to see was that there was a lot of truly misinformed folks. And, and I say misinformed as in folks who really do mean well, but unfortunately get bad information. And then it becomes a game of telephone where people just spread constantly. And 
you start to realize that the common thread was truly a misunderstanding or a not a really a understanding of the source of the material or misinterpretation of studies. There was a lot that was going on that ended up having to, for me to end up kind of secondarily like correct that I pivoted a lot of like what I was doing originally on social media, which was just like, I was just there to talk about video games and very recreational. And I realized I needed to very pivot much so to be uh, responsive to that. And so I really took a much more harder stance on teaching the public about certain terminologies, teaching people about how how systems typically work and teaching folks just in general, like how the world of infectious disease is how we operate our mind frame and how we perceive the world as well. And also just in general, like a lot of the issues we that have existed from a global health perspective. I have worked in a lot of previous areas that were in hot zones. And it's been something that I think a lot of people tend to forget is that COVID was not the COVID was not the first international kind of disease that's sort of come out. There's been many others that have spurred up and has caused havoc. We just don't hear about a lot of them in developed countries because we are privileged to know that we don't have to worry about it or we have good public health infrastructure to ensure that we don't see things like diphtheria or malaria or whatever it might be. And these are just things that we I always have to put into perspective for folks. So it's really just kind of putting that into the ether, really. <laughs> you want to go, go back to what I said earlier. We are, as doctors, very creative and you, sir, are very creative because whilst you are interested in gaming and whatever else, you've used social media really as a force for good and you've seen the opportunity to reach people in a way that few of us have. The other piece of this, and something I wanted to explore with you, is the idea that the, what the pandemic taught us was the knight in shining armor isn't coming in many, many cases. And often it's up to us as individuals and as families to make sure that we look after ourselves in the way that we look after our money, look after our health. And there, that means being informed in a way that before seemed almost unnecessary because we were relying on the specialist, the doctor, the expert. And we realize now from your experience and ours on this side of the pond that sometimes, sometimes you need to really think for yourself and be sure that you understand what information is being put out there and the source of that information. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think when, when we look into that, it's really, it's a two-sided street where we need to think about very much, not just from a healthcare system setting, but from a public health infrastructure setting. One of, one of my favorite things I remember my professor teaching me at one point, he says, a wonderful, perfect public health system is one you've never heard of. <laughs> and it's true. And it's true. I really do believe it because a perfect public health system is something people will not, you, you're not going to hear much about it because it's, it's working. The communities are healthy and thriving and they are a focal source of resource for people and they know that they can be trusted. And they have the support that they need. But we do unfortunately do not have a perfect public health system, whether if we believe it or not. And I know a lot of people probably disagree based on their current setting. But I, I think there's always room for improvement in that, in that field. So, But I 100% agree on what you're saying right there. 
COVID isn't going to be the last pandemic. I mean, we can be pretty sure of that. Given climate change and all the other things that are happening, we are going to have other infections and viruses that are going to impact on us. Knowing the lessons of COVID, what do you think will be our approach to the next pandemic? The approach really is several things, actually. And we talked in depth about this from the U.S. side for the Centers for Disease Control, which is where I'm at right now. One, we need to have eyes on surveillance on these like viruses and pathogens everywhere. So a truly robust global genomic surveillance group worldwide. So that's the first one. Two, we truly need to, and this is something I've, unfortunately I do not see in many governments and systems is that we need to have learned and take the lessons we learned from the past two, three years and really adopt a robust pandemic preparedness plan. Every single health system should have an infection protocol. Every health system should have what do we do should a global pandemic like this come out and we have to shut down again and we have to ensure safety of staff and the patients? How do we adapt that? We And also working with the local governments. The third is we need to be better. We need to really bolster our engagement from the private sector, public private sector as well with a lot of the pharmaceutical industries and a lot of the different global agencies to figure out how best can we figure out bringing a pipeline, a, a fast pipe, rapid pipeline from a concept note to an actual treatment or vaccine. Now, probably we won't be at that point where right now, especially with mRNA vaccines being so robust and flexible, we might not need to be from, from concept note, but we need to figure out how best can we adapt situations like this for future possible pandemics and how do we adopt it so that we do have a universal vi vaccine approach? Because right now with COVID, for example, we don't have a pan-cervical virus or pan-coronavirus vaccine. We have several that are in research that are in pipeline, but those are not going to be available for some time. And I doubt, and this is a little bit on my cynical side, is that once we do develop something like that, what the uptake will look like, because our government has pretty much in many countries have already moved on and have said that, oh, well, we should be okay and things will be back to normal. And I'm like, well, no, we don't know whether if there is another coronavirus, which there's very much a lot of animal reservoirs that are out there to happen. Could something like SARS-CoV-3 <laughs> come out down the line? And I pray we don't, but there's a very pervasive complacency that happens in a lot of different institutions. And we need to always have the hot rod and poke people and, and remind them that this is not done. I don't want people to panic, but we do need to start rationing up our resources and figuring out what to do should something like this happen again. That has not happened. And, and really, honestly, at the end, we really need to repair a lot of damaged health systems and public health infrastructure that has not really been suffering for the past three years that have still not re yet recovered. And in my local county, in my, in my state right now, we have the staff left because of a lot of the pressures and a lot of the anti-vax antagonism and they have yet to be replenished in that aspect. And the government has not felt it was a necessary service to re-up re again. And if something like this were to happen again, 
we won't have the resources necessary to plan and implement a vaccine campaign. We wouldn't. But that's just kind of where I'm at. I want to explore one thing that you didn't mention, and that Mm -hmm. was a problem, not just in the US, but also here in Australia, I believe. And that was the whole business of engaging with the public and making sure the public understood some of the basic things like mask Mm. wearing, for example, hand hygiene, etc. People assumed various things about the mask. It was seen as a symbol of the taking away of their freedom. Or alternatively, they saw it as a way of protecting themselves and reminding themselves of the need for social distancing, which saved many lives in the end. How will Mm -hmm. we tackle this in the future? How do we get from the point of the public health system understanding the infectious disease to the public itself understanding the need to take action? Yeah, and that's, and you know, I'm glad that you pointed this out. And it's a very complicated problem because one of the big, one of the biggest one is we don't have a central entity that people can go to to get that ans- those answers. And we and I think every single international agency really doesn't matter or national agency for health really everyone stumbled during the first few year few years of the pandemic because it was either like okay well do we prioritize mask wearing how do we talk about how mask is effective do we talk about vaccines and how do we ensure that we're rolling it out efficiently a lot of those approaches ended up causing a lot of distrust in national entities and a lot and groups that should have been the central focus of where people would go to to get those information so the first one and this is i don't even want to we can go into three-hour discussion on this is how do we reestablish that trust into one central entity whether if it is from a national or from a you know local aspect the second really is really engaging with the private sector to and the um, big tech giants to figure out how best can we ensure misinformation and disinformation are truly addressed. With Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter, Facebook, with Instagram, TikTok, none of those platforms currently have that capacity to right now to truly handle disinformation and misinformation in a scalable way. We don't have that. And until we tackle that, these bad faith actors are going to continue acting in its best interest and they will always be one step ahead and we are failing in many in many aspects of getting ahead of that curve and finally the third one really i could think of is we as a training aspect many many so i think a lot of physicians and researchers should be training future generations of researchers and doctors on how to communicate better with the public and and i say public versus an individual patient because there is a difference when you talk from one-to-one patient versus in a public environment or a Twitter or whatever it might be, breaking down concepts and being able to talk in a way, personable way that people would be comfortable engaging with you to ask questions. And I will say this right now, a lot of doctors are not great science communicators. A lot, you know, and this is this is something that we're coming to realize right now of many of the physicians that are on Twitter or in all those social media platforms is that many of them are either communicating in a way that's harmful or two, they truly are bad faith actors that are out there spreading disinformation. So we, we need to be better about training 
our future generations to communicate if we want to be sure that STEM fields in general have better representation from the public. We don't have that right now either. So it's a lot. I will say we'll take at least two decades to really get to if we're serious enough to get there. And I guess one of the things we maybe should add to that is changing the curriculum in medical schools to make sure that part of your training is, as you say, in better communication of science in a way that's digestible, not just for the public, but also individual patients, because we don't do that particularly well either. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Dr. Nero, it's been an absolute joy spending time with you. We, we could go on talking for several more hours. I'm pretty Absolutely. sure of that. Um, so much ground covered there and so many very, very important aspects of our health, healthcare and healthcare system that need attention. Thank you so much for taking the time. And, and I do hope that we'll get another chance to spend some more time together. Thank you for having me. And I appreciate the chat as well. Have a good one. The Health Design Podcast, serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com.